Hello, everybody, and welcome to a very special edition of the Motorsport Magazine podcast, during which we'll be talking about all things getting started in motorsport. My name is Robert Labrook, and I'm the magazine's production editor, and I'm also a very amateur club racer myself. But I'm joined by a far more expert panel of drivers for this podcast, who have all agreed to put their reputations and their names on the line to share their stories and memories from the early days in the sport. Now, those familiar with the magazine will have spotted that in our February issue, we got the chance to partner up with Radical Sports Cars to put our in-house photographer, Linda McNeil, through his ARDS test, and also a series of driving techniques and training, eventually throwing him in at the deep end in the SR1 Cup Championship finale at Brands Hatch last November. Now, I'm very pleased to report that Lyndon survived the experience unscathed and joins us today. Hello. Plus, we're also going to welcome some of the stars from behind the scene that helped bring that feature to life. So we are joined here by professional motorsport coaches Stuart Mosley. Hello. Roger Bromley. Hi. And Radical Motorsport's own Alex Mortimer. Hello. Now, between the three of them, they have literally decades of motorsport experience, and I'm sorry to make them all sound old. And each of them has already had their own storied driving career. So, being as briefly as I can, we'll start with running down Stuart. Stuart started racing in the mid-1990s in Formula Vauxhall, had a few shunts and then did quite well. Um, before he moved into sports cars, he's done British GT, he's raced in America, he's competed at Le Mans 24 hours four times, plus he's also won titles in both the UK and European radical categories. Roger Bromley is very much a child of radicals, but started on short ovals, so we'll talk about that a bit later. Um, he's been racing radicals for over a decade because he's got very little imagination in anything else. Uh, he's been a champion in the UK and Europe, and now he works for the brand as a professional driver coach. And then Alex Mortimer was a successful British Championship carter before he moved into Porsche racing. He was British GT champion in 2007, and then he moved into European GTs before going on to compete in the World Endurance Championship and also race at Le Mans. So we're all gathered here in Motorsports London office to talk about how to get started in motor racing, how to do it, how not to do it, and we'll also talk about all of the pitfalls novices can get caught in, plus those surprise things that nobody actually tells you when you have a fevered idea that starting a racing campaign might actually be a good idea. So, gents, um, I guess we'll start with our rookie driver, Lyndon. Um, you only had a couple of weeks to work with Radical to make your racing debut. Was that a particularly daunting task? For somebody that's never been in a car before, other than maybe a passenger now and again, it was, yeah, to be thrown in at the deep end with an ARDS where you've never even been on track with anybody faster than you, it kind of puts into perspective. And when you're told to hit, well, I, I say hit minimum speeds, but when your instructor's beside you go, if you're not doing 120 before you start breaking down, rev it straight. And you're thinking, I'm quite happy with 70 here. <laughs> you know, it, is, it was daunting. But then the guys, you know, sat around the table here with me now, put me through my paces and had so much confidence and faith in me that when I went out for my first test at Donington with Stuart, admittedly he refused to get in the passenger seat with me, but it was such an experience that you, you just can't, you can't imagine it until you actually sit in the car and, and just pedal it faster and faster being told that you can do it. It's, it's brilliant. And it was something that you wanted to do because it was quite nice because your dad came along, it was a real family affair, but it was something you'd been waiting quite a few years to actually get a go at. Yeah, about 39. <laughs> but who's counting? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I lost count after 38. But yeah, no, it was, it's, I've grown up in sport. I've grown up at Snetterton. I've watched, I've probably watched all three of these boys racing. 
and not known it. I didn't see Stuart crash his former Vauxhall Junior at uh, into S's though. I missed that it, one. Importantly, at the end of the Revit straight, it was. Yeah, it was. You probably weren't doing 120. That's what your problem was. You weren't going quick <laughs> enough. Um, it was probably my dad that picked you up on the back of his flatbed. <laughs> so Stuart, you had the uh, honour and privilege of working with Lyndon on his first day in a race car. Um, what did you make of it? I think for anyone uh, starting out you know, for the first time, it's, it's a tricky proposition and probably starting out at a general test day at uh, Donington where there's basically anything out on the track from, you know, whether it be a, a 2CV right the way to a historic Formula 1 car, it's quite a it's quite a daunting task and actually, to be fair, he did a very good job, uh, more or less kept it on the grey bit. <laughs> there were a few issues. And Roger had the fun of coaching him at Brands Hatch. What were your in, what were your impressions? Did he do all right, or did he barely scrape through it? Yeah, all I can ever be in motorsport is honest, and I was really honest with Lennon. You could see straight away that he had a, an affinity to it. He was keen, he was eager, and he wasn't driving like a, a lunatic. He was well within his capabilities, and what really is the trickiness is to try and exploit the the opportunities that the car gives you and the car is generally better than most of the people who get into it for the fir first time so seeing where those limits are is quite important and Lyndon was right up for finding every limit he possibly could and did, did, did well at that. And he did everything with a smile on his face as well which was, <laughs> which was, which was quite nice. I mean Alex, um, obviously the SR1s are quite a happy thing for a novice to jump into as a, along with more experienced drivers. Um, it was an ideal starting point wasn't it? Absolutely. Um, I mean, the one thing that I think we can probably get blasé to is how uh, fast actually the SR1 is. Um, you've, you've raced it before and I remember your first reaction uh -huh. of jumping out of it saying, wow, this really is quick. This really is. It, it moves your sort of uh, expectations up quite a lot. Um, and it I moves think more than the expectations. <laughs> I think coming into it um, with, you know, completely dry, Lyndon did a really good job. Um, it's not uh, it, it's not like going into a, a hot hatch or something like that. So, uh, you know, we asked a lot of him and, uh, and he delivered it well. Good stuff. But obviously, the, today's chat, gents, goes, goes beyond just SR1s and Lyndon's own exploits because he's now obviously the office bragger. Um, but let's go over the starting point. So if you want to get started in racing, you've got to take your ARDS test, your Association of Racing Drivers schools. Now, when I took it, probably about eight years ago, I thought it was going to be a really, really scary thing, like a GCSE for racing drivers. But actually, I, f I found it a lot more kind of welcoming, if that makes any sense, because actually we're in an industry that wants people to come and do it. So as long as you're not kind of an idiot. Um, I mean, Linda, you did, you did your most, you're the newest racing driver around here. Um, how did you find your odds? Did it freak you out at all? Or? I think any test, I mean, I still get scared when I take the car in for an MOT, you know, you, you don't want that to fail. But when I, it was, it was having not done it before and you kind of think there was a lot of pressure, especially pressure from the fact that this was going in a magazine, Radical was sorting me out and I didn't want to let anybody else down. Um, you sit there in the classroom to start with, you go through the video, you've watched the video that they've sent you before on flags and everything else. And it's, it's just common sense really it is it's daunting but it's i wouldn't say easy but if you know what you're doing then it's fine obviously we'll explain the arts test is set up between a multiple choice questions section knowing your flags and then also a theory bit on track isn't it yeah so there is some driving to it it's not there's just a little bit of driving thing. yeah I've, I've conducted arts tests for 
a long a long time and, and I think you hit the nail on the head as long as you apply common sense and you take your time through the the written paper it's a fairly straightforward uh, test but for most people that come and do it unless, unless they are carters coming into into car racing then most people haven't done a test for a quite yeah. a long time in their life and I think that is the more of a challenge than the actual test itself I think so yeah and it's, it's, it's having if you're in a class I mean I was in a classroom with four other people and, and two of them had been out on a track day all morning that I was on the test with one had raced 15 years ago and it was that kind of me being completely green they knew my job as well which didn't help but you're there just thinking I can't fail it and it was it was there was the nerves but it was also the excitement about doing it as well. You also had a queue of your fellow photographers just waiting for you to go off. Every corner they were five deep. Oh <laughs> no, not on the yards. They were, thankfully they weren't there at the yards. That's what they you think. <laughs> <laughs> I think I had more pressure just trying to keep my dad kind of from tears. <laughs> I think there's a big thing as well with the the yards testing. And I remember doing mine, uh, turning up, and you know you've been casting, you, whatever you've been doing in the past, you've been doing anything. You think. I have to be fast. I really have to be fast here. And you realise now with hindsight that actually the one thing you don't need to do on the arts test is be fast. Um, but still, the, the instructor can tell you that. You're sitting next to him, you put your belt on and you think this guy wants to see what I can do. And it's just not the case. I see. I, I mean, I was told drive within your own capabilities and he takes you out for the first three laps and he throws it around and you realise what a 208 GTI can do. And then you get behind the wheel and you're like, I'm just going to pool around. But you get told, push it, push it. Because obviously he wants to see that you can control a car as well and be within your safe limits, I feel. I had a a, a chap at uh, Castle Coombe in a Ford Focus a long long time ago. This could have been me. This sounds like my (laughs) (laughs) answer. Who essentially told me, as long as you don't hit anything or drive anything green, we should be okay. So... um, (laughs) So, uh, yeah, it was a slightly different experience. but uh. Mine was much, much further back than that. Mine was in an Astra at uh, Jim Russell Racing Driver School, Donington. Chris Hodgetts uh, of uh, Touring Car fame was my uh, instructor. But I think it, the important thing to understand, if you know anyone who's aspiring to kind of do their arts test, is actually speed isn't essentially important like you were anticipating, Alex, but actually you do have to drive at a relative speed because what we don't want to do is be passing someone that's going to get lapped on lap three or, you know, struggling to, to find the right line. And actually, sometimes with the arts test, we actually get a, a bit of a problem with that with people who have raced before the arts test existed, let their license lapse and have come back and are now frustrated because they're having to do a test, which they don't feel they should do. And then on top of that, then fail. It's quite a difficult thing to explain to some of them. Roger's been far too quiet so far. Tell, tell us about your arts test experience, Roger. Come on. Well, I think just more kind of on a wider sort of level, I think it's fair to say of any of the three of us as instructors, we can probably tell quite quickly whether somebody can drive a car. And we don't need to be impressed by, you know, particularly on a test day or indeed an arts test. If somebody comes along, the way they sit in the car, the way they do with the seat belts, the way they... Uh, hold the steering wheel of the gear stick. We're going to know within two minutes whether they can race a car, you know, and what we don't need to be is impressed by how fast they are, what we need to do. And what the ARDS test is all about is safety, ensuring that you're not a danger to either yourself and that dreadful, awful quote, either yourself or other road users, but we are there to make sure things are good. And 
I think with that, with that in mind, actually, the thing that often surprises me with, with people that come to do the arts test is the amount of them actually have done no preparation up to that point. They've just kind of like, well, I've booked my test, you know, that's a dead cert. And they have, you know, so even to the extent where people have never even been to a racetrack before. And I think probably that was a big difference for you because you'd seen a racetrack mean, plenty I'd, of times. Yeah, I'd grown up at Snetterton and... Uh, but my trial, I always see a racetrack from it from the outside and looking back at the wrong way of a corner and, and looking at it through a, through a camera lens. So you, you do have a blinkered view, but having followed the sport for since day one, it's kind of, you know what lines are, you know where the car should be, you know where people are going to be faster than you and what they're going to be doing. So it, yeah, it helps. Yeah, and I think that's, a, that's exactly what Roger's saying. You know, seeing you go to Donington for the first time and getting in the car, although it was quite a a big thing to do you had a good idea of what to expect yeah not to go off <laughs> in, in front of you guys yeah the thing is should you how much preparation should you do for an arts test because there's no kind of written rule is it i mean uh, the, you need to know your flags and you need to have a, a basic idea of driving um how much would you say revision wise i mean it's not gcse cramming level is it no not at all not at all but uh, you know uh, it's like anything you you can't do too much prep i don't think um you know maybe if, even if you've just done a track day and and maybe had a session of instruction so you've got a rough idea what a racing line is you know that sort of stuff is very basic and, and obviously it does help but the the arts test itself as you say it, the actual written paper is relatively straightforward and because it's multiple choice as long as you use your common sense and, and read all the options going you can't go too far wrong absolutely so We've got our license and we're now looking at exactly what we want to race. Now, when I did this, this was easily the most confusing part because I think at last count there's well over 200 championships and series in the UK and Ireland. Um, so how do, how do you go around picking The picking obvious choice is obviously has to be a radical. Um, <laughs> I so second that. That was very predictable. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, and that's, that, makes, so that narrows it down to just a few models. So that's made it much easier for everyone. But you started in Porsches. Uh, again, that's factually correct. Um, uh, did no, you? So, no, well, started in karting and did some did some radicals before moving to Porsches. Actually, so that's well done, Stuart. Yeah, they're very good. Started started with an SR3, then an SR1, so or SR4 at the time it was. So you had quite an average co-driver as well. I remember when you uh, started in radicals. I had had all sorts. I'm not going to name anyone. I've been warned about that. So to, um, be, to be fair, <laughs> it's, impo it's important to point out the fellow who was his co-driver actually shared a car with at Le Mans. And he turned up with his race helmet, with a dark visor on, with no clear visor. I said, so uh, what, what, what are you, you going to do when it's dark, Phil? <laughs> oh dear. He's definitely one of motorsports characters. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's quite interesting, though, because obviously you were doing karting to quite a high level. So you would presume the first thing that you would do would look to get in at F4 or Formula Ford or something, but you went a different way. So, I mean, what did you take into consideration? Yeah, so, um, for sure, when we were coming up that way, um, the ambition was always to go to Le Mans, get to Le Mans, however we did that. Um, it would be amazing to say, oh, I'd love to be in Formula One. But we looked at it with the view that at the, ulti the ultimate step before Formula One would have been, I don't know if it was GP2 at that point, but whatever the ultimate feeder series was, it was a million pounds a year and we definitely couldn't make that happen. So why embark on the first couple of steps that you're really hard to make happen if you know you can't carry on? So the reason we went the route we went was uh, sports cars just look more sustainable. 
Uh, it looked like it had that driver sharing format. And it's probably fair to say that all of us drivers around this table make our living now um, driving with chaps uh, who are far more successful than us and we can use our skills hopefully in the racing world to, to give that to them and, and in return we get to do some driving so um, it just seemed like a more sustainable route. Roger you're, you're quite interested because you started on short ovals, hot rods? Am I right? Hot, I've not, not done in know what a hot rod is. Formula One stock car. Brisker, Formula One stock. Formula One oh, it's Brisker. Stock I apologise yeah, yeah. to short oval fans out there. I'm going to get lynched on the way home, aren't I? <laughs> so come and uh, talk to us. Why? Why? What got you into Brisker? Because those things are frankly terrifying. <laughs> those things are actually frankly terrifying, but they're also extraordinary fun. And I just loved the whole kind of oval scene when I, where where I was brought up. There was a, an oval track very close by, and so I used to go there frequently. And then when I kind of did my university stuff I kind of congratulated myself with a, a sort of rented drive and uh, and it went from there I was hooked and I had to have more and more and more of course bought my own well bought and then eventually built and raced my own car so yeah I had a great great deal of fun with that uh, to a point uh, I still actually do Formula One stock car racing to this day and I'm still do sort of four or five six meetings a year if I possibly can and it usually works uh, but then, uh, you know, after I'd reached a certain point in my career, I thought, well, this is this is good fun, but perhaps I need to sort of look something a little bit that involves a little bit less pain, certainly physical pain, uh, and and try something a little bit different. And somebody said, "Have you heard of those radical things?" And they were fairly new at that time. And I said, "Well, no," and gave it a go. But I think I'm the probably a di slightly different from all from both Stuart and uh, Alan as far as I had no you know up to the age of sort of 17 18 never touched motorsport at all uh, and so to come into it absolutely you know green and no idea at all it was a very very steep learning curve and also doing it on an extreme budget I mean have it when I say an extreme budget I mean nothing you know student loan got me my first drive you know that's that's what I, I used and and it was always like that so doing it with uh, with very little money has all, has been quite education. So I, I used to do everything myself. It was all my own mechanic. It, I did all the mechanic. I did all the prepping. I did all the racing. I drove the car. I you know drove the truck to the race circuit. You know, and all on a shoestring. And it's been a great a great great ride. I'll tell you what. Though, going back to what Alex said, uh, you know, choosing a radical. Uh, and this is no advertisement. This is no you know. I'm not trying to big anybody up, but I am so pleased I chose a radical. That first car that I bought off the internet for six, seven thousand quid in Cardiff was the best decision I ever made because for bang for buck, there is nothing like it. So I'm really glad that uh, in a way it's a good thing that Lyndon has had the experience of racing an SR1. And the bad thing is that I don't know how you improve on that for for any any amount of money really. It's, it's probably is probably a difficult one. I mean, I, I always thought if I if I ever did motorsport, I'd get into saloons or something like that, purely because I've driven saloon cars, and it wasn't a profession for me. It was just a bit of fun, and I thought that'd be the cheapest thing. But now I have driven an SR1, and you feel downforce, and you feel how amazing it does feel going through corners. You just think oh, there is no. I'd love to do a full season and drive it everywhere rather than just Brands and Donington at the moment. But yeah, it's. I guess the only progression is, you know, where Alex ends up in, in LMP2 or, you know, 
proper sports cars. Good luck getting that through expenses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the good thing is you pay, I mean, SR1s are, are extremely well well priced, the, the price bracket they're in, and you do have the next level to go to within Radicals, yeah. and of course there are other open seat form, uh, open cockpit formula, but I, I think really, uh, you know, just w the, the next stage up from SR1 is clearly the SR3, the three, and that's yeah. an extraordinary, that just takes it to the next level, and so I don't know what you can get, for similar money, you, you, in fact, I do. And you, you, you just can't. Nothing. You 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 can't get it, and that's where um, obviously <laughs> we're all quite biased on the radical front. Because you're biased. Well, I'm very <laughs> biased. Um, you just you just can't get anything. I, I came back last week from uh, Barcelona from testing a prototype car uh, that is multiples of cost of, the, of, of a radical SR8. Um, not really that much faster, and it really underlines what great value they they do offer. So. I think anyone coming into it, an SR1 is a really solid bet. It's uh, I'm yet to meet a novice in their first year or two who says, I'm just frustrated that it's not fast enough. Um, it really gives you uh, the growth you need in your driving to be able to be content for a number of years. See, Stuart's been quite quiet for a while, but he told me a fact this morning, I don't know if you guys know this, that Stuart was actually one of the first ever 16-year-olds to go properly circuit racing with an MSA licence. Yeah, that's true. Actually, so I started karting in eighteen years ago. Let's not get into the age thing too too soon. Um, yeah, so I started karting in uh, Coma Cadet. That was the only option as as uh, an eight to twelve year old when when I was in that bracket, and I did that for a, a season, and then moved into junior karting. and And the MSA changed the regulation where you didn't have to have a road driving license to to go circuit racing, and and that fell at the point when I finished junior karting. So I pr progressed from what was Junior Britain at the time into the Formula Vauxhall Junior uh, paddock. And I raced that for, for two seasons with me and my father and a friend from school running the car. Um, it was a very educational two years. Um, running it ourselves was, was a, a, not a challenge from a mechanical point of view, but just a challenge because you're up against big teams. Obviously, it was a support race that the British touring cars at that time. There were some big names in that season as well, weren't there? Was it Peter Dunbrick, wasn't it? That's right, yeah, my first season actually. Uh, yeah, Peter won the championship. Um, and Justin Wilson as well, I think. Uh, no, Justin uh, was not until 95. Ah, okay. And so my season started relatively well. First race was at Thruxton. Uh, qualified seventh on the grid. I was pretty pleased because there's almost 30 cars on, on the grid. Race was torrential. Uh, sorry, qualifying was torrential. The race was dry, and I thought it was a great idea to arrive at the chicane on the first lap, three abreast, uh, on the outside. And as you can probably imagine, three and one doesn't uh, go too well. And so I ended up getting squeezed off on the outside by the grandstands, hit the tie wall, took uh, one corner off the car, uh, but I was still trying to, you know, get it in first gear and get away because I was still in like my karting mode. Uh, so that was a, quite an abrupt arrival uh, into my first race. Second race uh, was at Brands, and that was a bit. That was a. I was closer to pole position, obviously a much smaller circuit, but I was twenty fourth on the grid. So that was a bit of a rude awakening to you know the competitive level of, of Vauxhall Junior at the time. Uh, and then obviously you you saw what happened in one of my later races, that video I showed you earlier. See, that's quite interesting because obviously we, we will clarify this wasn't you throwing it off on a straight and deciding to turn right into a tyre wall. There was a failure on the on the yeah. rear left. I that's believe. right. Yeah, the uh, the toe link broke on the the left rear, so the the left rear uh, towed out by about three inches as as I hit the brake. See, he says. <laughs> he says. <laughs> 
So as a novice, you're in your first season. You've had a crash in your first race. You have something like that when you get to snare. How how do you kind of convince yourself? How do you get over that? Because presumably that leave, you know, first season, you must think, blimey, I don't like this crashing thing. No, the crashing wasn't wasn't very good, to be perfectly honest. Um, that was a bit of a weird one. I mean, to, so put it in perspective, and, and I, uh, 16, I probably didn't see it how I probably see it now. Um, it was the it was the same weekend as as the infamous Imola weekend and it was on the bank holiday Monday and and um, as some of you know my helmet's yellow I was a bit of a Senna fan at the time and that's how it ended up that that color but I sort of went into that race knowing what had happened the previous day on the Sunday and and that was pretty devastating as you know as a teenager and uh, so there was this sort of after my accident I was perfectly okay didn't hurt myself car was reasonably damaged but my, I remember my mum going to see what happened and, and she got to the grandstand, as you can imagine, touring car weekend, big crowds. No one's seen me because I've been scooped off to the medical centre because they're in panic because of what happened the previous day and all this sort of thing, you know, it affected, it got, got as far as affecting Snetton. And of course the crowd were like, oh yeah, he's fine, but it's a mega crash. And of course my mum's like absolutely devastated. So she, um, yeah, so from that point of view, it, I, it didn't affect me particularly until I saw the video of it and I realised how far my neck had stretched and my, you know, and, and the belts had given. And I was like, wow, that's pretty brutal. <laughs> One you feel the next morning, I imagine. Yeah, very much. We've, we've always been telling him to wind his neck and ever since. <laughs> But Alex, you, you must have had a couple of shunts in your time. <laughs> well, I'm glad that's a real uh, endorsement of my ability. So thank you for that. Um, now, I've had a few um, along the way. I think normal skirmishes that everyone has in racing, a couple of big ones in testing. Um, but what Stu said is, is quite true, I think. If you've come, uh, we've been fortunate enough to start racing karting, you know, from being six, seven, eight years old. And you're so used to sort of picking yourself up um, from a from a tire wall and stuff like that, that that by the time you get to cars, whilst you're new to cars, you've actually been racing maybe a decade already. Um, so, as he said with Thruxton, when he was sat in the wall with with three corners on his car, he was still trying to get it in first gear and go. And I think that is what karting puts into you. Whereas it is a, a different prospect if you're coming fresh into racing. You know, you've worked hard enough to get yourself to a position to be able to afford to go and do some racing. If you're coming in at 25, 30, 50. Um, you can, you know, it's a completely different sort of uh, risk profile you have going through your head. Um, whereas, yeah, luckily at the moment you still think, oh, God, I want to get going again. Or maybe that just means I haven't had a big enough crash. I don't know. But <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think taking your teammate's door off was pretty good, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, I was actually thinking about that on the way in today. <laughs> so we did um, in uh, 2005 was my first couple of British GT races in the Porsche. Um, and in the sister car that the team was running, uh, we had uh, Sean Edwards racing with um, Steve Warburton, and they were a good pairing, uh, and I remember chasing Sean round uh, Silverstone International Circuit, and spending a whole chunk of my stint thinking, I can do this, I can get past this guy, he's fast. They say he's fast, but I think I'm faster. Um, and, and taking every risk I can to try and keep up with him uh, until the moment came when I thought, this is, this is my time. Um, and really just running out of talent about 150 metres before the hairpin and careering into uh, his door. 
uh, and coming back in tandem, really, in back into the pit lane, both cars absolutely munched, like the front of my car hanging off, the side of my car hanging off, lots of his car hanging off, and pulling up and the team thinking, what have you done? And just to, if look, if you could be, if you if the ground could swallow you up, that was the moment I needed it to be. That must have been a frosty debrief in the truck. Um, if you even made it to the I truck. don't know what was worse, actually, because obviously it was it was my family's team. So um, the, there was a lot of frost from, from my dad. <laughs> I think Sean was better than uh, better than the team. He was he was not so bad. Roger, you're from, you're from the land of brick and steel in Brisco. I mean, circuit racing must be soft to you, surely. Yeah, I've had some pretty good ones in both, really. In fact, I've had I've been I've been knocked out in both in a fairly big way. And and but the the question he originally asked was, you know, what, you know, what's what's how easy is it to get back in? I mean, for me, you just need to look at Lyndon's face at Snetterton and see the joy and the happiness uh, that was. You you do not get the buzz of you know, uh, the, 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 the adrenaline buzz that comes with motorsport without the risk. And, you know, we take, we have to take it on the chin and whether we could afford to, uh, I don't think anybody can really say they're happy to spend loads of money repairing a car, but we're racing at ludicrous speeds, you know, within inches of one another and, and things happen. I mean, I don't want to, that to stop happening just because I had a bit, of, a bit of a bash and I got knocked out. So I want to get back in the car and get it right the next time. And the, the benefit you get, the buzz I get from being wheel to wheel at any level is extraordinary. But let's talk, so we've heard about Alex's embarrassing first <laughs> instances um you you must have some memories of when things just didn't quite go to plan yeah okay so a couple of quickies is uh there's i mean i can't give the sort of same exalted names apart from the days i used to race with the the very heady heights when i used to race with superstars like stuart mosley and alex mortimer but uh certainly in uh formula on stock cars was you know with a you know six six seven hundred brake horsepower engine on dirt and the throttle jamming wide open you know with i guess 50 meters before the before i had to turn and you know taking out four of the steel posts either side and finding that my brand new well the, the car that i just built was absolutely destroyed and irretrievable that was no fun the uh, classic of being at Paul Ricard in uh, you know in the first test and uh, in fact this is a warm up lap and i was going to cane my first uh, proper practice lap and uh, locked up at the uh, at the first chicane and went right and woke up in a helicopter and in a fairly poor condition <laughs> yeah it was, a, it was a it was a good one it was a really good it one it was a good one <laughs> well, I, I think unless you, you know, <laughs> I, I reckon Stuart would have been you know it's, it, well any of us go was, my, was mine a better crash than his I think it was mine was a much better crash I think one general comment as well that is, is good is when you look at the video from your crash you see how much the safety stuff has come on. Um, you look at your, uh, there's just nothing, you just, there's nothing around you. There's no hands device. I was gonna say, with, that, with the hands device, that would have been a different- uh, Different sort of crash. And it really has, in terms of, uh, um, for people coming into the sport now, I think the risk profile of what you're exposed to is so much more control. Whilst it's always going to be there, um, what we have now in terms of modern cars, modern safety equipment really does make it a lot safer place to be. Circuits have changed hugely in the, ma in the amount of time that I've been racing. Um, and uh, so that adds, adds to it. But then on the other side, it does breed a bit more confidence. I was gonna, you, you guys have gone through, like you say, you've 
been without hands devices you've seen how circuits have changed and i've seen how circuits have changed from my point of view of going oh we're, we're 10 15 20 feet further back the car's getting smaller in the frame and it's a pain in the backside but having got in the car having never driven raced against anybody when the first time i was on the grid there was the there was the nerves of not having competed with anyone before but you didn't worry about safety at all you know i'd never worn a hands device until my first test you put it on you go oh, it's a little bit uncomfortable as he straps you in really tight but then five ten laps in you, you you just think well that's the norm and there is if you worried about it you wouldn't do it at all would you and i think the fact that like you say car safety's come on you know overalls are much better helmets are better you you just if you you just eliminate that kind of fear and enjoy yourself so let's let's just talk about those all important kind of first seasons because obviously motorsport by that point is new it's exciting um it's actually quite scary let's be honest it's it is a scary sport you, it's a dangerous sport it's probably the best sport on earth let's face it um but you learn so much from that that first season um let's start with Stuart um because obviously you had quite a checkered first season <laughs> as you said um, you sound what, bad yeah <laughs> what were the other look at what you've gone on to achieve mate four four times at Le Mans um so let's talk about I mean what what did the first year of car racing teach you especially when you were running the car essentially as, as dad and lad um I think my first two seasons really racing the Vauxhall Junior it didn't necessarily bring a great deal of, of results and silverware as such but what it did do is it taught me a lot actually mechanically about the cars and things that were important and I spent most of that time prepping the car myself in between being at you know school uh, with one of my friends so I think that was quite an important stage for me and slightly prior to that I did my work experience at Paul Stewart Racing uh, working on Dario Franchitti and Johnny Molum's Vauxhall Lotuses and so I had like you know this intensive two-week education into a car that was probably not hugely different to the car I was racing so that helped uh, I grew up going racing with my dad my dad had always run his own car and uh, you know other you know cars that, that some of them had been designed by my granddad so I, I suppose I'd had a a subconscious education I guess uh, for for quite a early part of my life um, but uh, yeah it was a big big for me see that's quite interesting because motorsport can be quite intimidating to get into if you are not technically minded so I've known a few people have said I'd love to go racing but I know nothing about cars um, do you think it's important to be technically minded as a driver I mean <laughs> I can tell you where an engine is I can't tell you how to remove it or how to fix it but I've luckily I've had a great team around me in Rob Sims Racing since since I started and they basically put the car together and say go drive it um with varying levels of success but do you think it's, it's important to be mechanically minded at all yes at the top end if you want to if you want to make it at the very to top end and we're talking you know proper you know full on Le Mans Formula One you need to have a good technical understanding of what the car is doing you need to be able to say that if you looked at most of the people in club motorsport, most of them wouldn't have a clue where the dipstick was. So I think there are two levels to it. I think that, yeah, if you want to be the, the, one of the best drivers, then you need to understand everything to do with the car handling and everything to do with the, the setup. If you're at, at the level of basic club racer coming into it, many of them will, will never even bother looking under the, under the bonnet. I think, I think um, uh, mechanical understanding to a certain level. I mean, you don't need to be like, 
over the top with with that but if you have an understanding of what goes on it certainly makes you more mechanically sympathetic with the car that can in turn bring you more results uh, and, and reliability and, and and so forth and also fixing problems that might have developed whereas without that education you probably would have just driven until it stopped I mean that's one of the things though isn't it one of the best ways to learn it is to actually do it I guess and be forced into those situations I think you need some sort of experience to call on so you don't necessarily need it yourself um, a lot of people I think who go racing probably are maybe not mechanically minded but have an interest in that sort of stuff so we'll have a basic rudimentary knowledge um, but if you've got someone you can draw on I think that's beneficial because there's odds on that there'll be some point in your racing career that you'll be stuck in the paddock at Donington Park at 10pm at night trying to work out why the thing's got no oil pressure or why this won't start or you know any any number of problems so I think just having a contact is definitely a, a, a beneficial thing do you find because obviously club racing one of the things that I've found really nice about it racing with the um, the classic sports car club big shout out there to the CSCC um, is actually how welcoming the paddock is so at that level they don't run championships so you turn up with a couple of cars scrutineering is is done but it's not the most thorough thing in the world they're not going to weigh the cars or get out dinos or anything like that because that's not the ethos of it but actually so many times our technical guys have jumped on and helped someone else that's had a problem or um, I remember turning up uh, to our second weekend and we still had the testing tyres on that we bought the car with and they'd done about four seasons and God knows how many laps of Thruxton before that anyway and we turned up at the track 20 minutes before qualifying and tried to buy tyres and they didn't sell them at the track so we had to borrow four we had to borrow four Dunlops from a rival competitor and I remember he said to me the first thing he went well I want you to have some decent tyres he went because I don't want to beat no one and I went well I'm pretty much a no one but you know <laughs> good luck with that but do you find especially you Alex because you've gone to the top you've gone to Le Mans you've uh, done WEC and Stuart as well do you find the atmosphere changes away from fun the higher up you get for me absolutely it does um, <coughs> at the at the grassroots level people are there as a hobby it's an enjoyment thing um, you know and everyone on the whole, wants people to succeed and get on. And then there is that sort of warm atmosphere where people will help you out and do what they can to help. Um, the further you move up, um, it becomes not only a business for a number of people, um, it's, it's how people are making their career. So if they have an advantage, they want to keep that to themselves. And I think whereas you have that atmosphere in the paddock, club racing where, you know, let's help him out, let's see how we can sort this, the further up you move, often it will be, Let's see how they sort that. <laughs> so um, it's it, it definitely uh, it definitely does change in my opinion. Stuart, do you agree? Yeah, I, I do agree. I mean, certainly. I mean, my my dad spent a period of time uh, in the eighties purely racing in Scandinavia, and there was good start money. It made the racing very cost effective, uh, and there was a few guys who would go uh, across from the UK over to Scandinavia to do this this racing and um, they, they, you know they were taking it quite seriously but they there was that sort of thing a bit like I was saying you know they'd help each other out and stuff whether that necessarily uh, crossed over with some of the other competitors but you know there was that sort of I don't know Brits abroad kind of uh, support and so on and you do see that kind of thing in a, in a lot in a lot of series and I think you do see that a little bit higher up but there is definitely a little bit like Al says you know let's see how they sort that out absolutely well, we've got about five minutes left, gents. So this is your confession session to um, essentially admit to anything you think you, you did a bit wrong 
during during your early days. So if you can give some some advice to our listeners who are thinking of getting started, tell them about a pitfall that you found that they, they should really know about. Um, I've got quite a few of these. So um, <laughs> I remember uh, back in karting days, uh, being a, a round of the British Championship and really heavily falling out with my dad uh, because we'd been off the pace all weekend. And I remember saying to him, look, we've just got the wrong, I'd somehow got in my head that we had the wrong batch of tires. So everyone runs the same tire, but they come from different production batches. And I remember convincing myself that the batch of tires we had was wrong. Uh, and I remember my dad saying, no, it's because you're in the wrong part of the circuit, you're doing this wrong. They, the list was long of what I was doing wrong. Um, so in the end, I bought with my own hard savings a set of tyres from this batch and I put them on and we were just as far off the pace. Um, <clears throat> and I remember taking the, the, the lesson I took away from that was that it is really easy to believe the equipment is not up to it, um, that the one week link in this is definitely not me. Um, <clears throat> but everyone has bad days and things don't work for whatever reason and you can just regroup and come back and you know it's not a bad thing but it's the age old adage um you know blaming the bad workman blaming his tools yeah that's what that's uh, quite easy to do we'll move on to roger we'll go around the table oh it's you know yeah i think that's re that's really accurate that and the, back in the stock car days I, I there was a t-shirt going around was the reason i didn't win the race was a spark plug fell off a tire let go the gear the gears wouldn't shift the clutch was slipping you know and the list does go on and definitely important not to to remember that the number one important thing in that car is the person behind the steering wheel uh but i i i just deeply with very 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 fond memories of a guy who used to work actually at radicals he was a chef and uh, Steve, wonderful, wonderful bloke. Um, we were at Snethers and it was my first or even second meeting uh, ever uh, in, a, in, a, in a radical, in fact, on the circuits. And uh, I don't know, we'd done the first, so we'd done qualifying and went out for the first race. And I was lapped by Alex, you know, four times and by Stuart 16 times uh, by the end of the race. But you I'd had the pace again, Alex. That must have been your tyres. <laughs> the there's a bad batch of tyres. I don't know if you heard about that. But um. <laughs> but I didn't care because that's not, you know, I was, uh, look, I was on the racetrack. That's all I cared about. And I was having a riot and I came off. I thought, yeah, that was brilliant. That, what, a, what a hoot. That was fabulous. And then Steve, Steve's kids, who were seven and eight, I got on with them really well, came up and said, you were great out there. I said, oh, really? Thanks very much. I said, yeah, every time you went into Russell, you had a different line. And and it was funnier each time and I thought yeah that's about right yeah so I mean I'd love to think I, I think if there were one thing just consistency it doesn't matter if you do things consistently wrong you can re rectify that but that would be quite an important lesson for me we'll jump to Stuart quickly uh, I think a bit like Al I suppose some of mine came from from karting I guess but I suppose the one thing I'd say is you talk to your competitors I mean referring back to what you said about Peter Peter Dunbrett racing in Vauxhall Junior I picked up a little thing actually just from him was just changing gear without the clutch you know and it sounds like you know fairly obvious thing but I've been like done half a season and I made made this effort to go do a bit of testing up at Knockhill and he was there and got chatting, chatting to him in the paddock and uh, I literally just picked that up from him and it wasn't I've been in this environment of being because I'm always running myself of being mechanically sympathetic and uh, I, even to the point actually when I got into LMP2 I remember having uh, uh, in a, in my first P sorry my second P2 race at the Nürburgring I got hit by a GT car 
and uh, and spun round and ended up off in into the the boonies. And my immediate reaction is right. We've got to make sure there's no dust, grass, anything else in the radiators because we've still got four hours to go. So my brain's like pit, like get. It. They're like, what are you doing in the pits? We're not ready. You know, it's just a silly, silly thing. And having been on the other side of that, you know, being in the pits, the car's out on the track, and all of a sudden it arrives in the pit lane, and no one's ready. The amount of time that that sort of costs. Um, but a good, a good funny story I can remember from my karting was actually the person who did, gave me a bit of coaching when I was karting, and he said when he very first started karting, obviously the old direct drives bump start. They tried to get him going, and they like bump started him like half a dozen times, and then this thing wouldn't start. It was just constantly locked up. And he never actually admitted to it at the, at the time. It just suddenly started. And it was because he'd had his foot hard on the brake, not the throttle, because no one had told him which was which. <laughs> so, like, his mechanics have <laughs> been <laughs> lifting him, dragging him a lot. <laughs> Dear me. Um, right, I think last word, can go to, uh, last word can go to Lyndon. So you were in this exact position looking to get involved in motorsport at the start of, well, middle of last year, shall we say. Um, so for anyone who is looking to give it a go this year, what bit of advice? Save your you pennies and do it. That's all I can say. It, there's unexpected costs, even if somebody's paying for you to do it, you still end up buying something that you think you need or don't need, but do it's it. only because you wanted that fashionable suit. Yeah, I, I told you the, the rhinestones yeah, the weren't necessary. the sparkles and everything else. I know. <laughs> it's Fireproof glitter for his beard. <laughs> <laughs> It's just go and do it. There's nothing better. And if you love motorsport and it's been part of your life for so long, then I can't think of anything better than, even if it's a track day, go out, have some fun for a couple of hours, enjoy yourself, and then think about just getting into it because there's nothing. The rest of watching these three guys' faces smiling about their careers is incredible. And I know it's never going to be me, but if I can get a few clubbies under my belt this year, then it's... it's another happy year it'll be a culture shock when you get in my Ford Puma yeah all that body roll <laughs> I have one more thing I think that I think is a good lesson that I feel like I've learned across years um, but also managed to do it to myself last year is wherever you are in racing you can never underestimate who you're racing against so it doesn't matter where you go whether you're racing in Formula One or you're racing in the Highlands in some championship you've never heard of just because you've never heard of this person who you're going to race against does not mean they're not really fast and I did this to myself last year we uh, Stuart and I actually uh, were doing some radical racing last year uh, Stuart was racing with a chap in the European Radical Championship in an SR8 uh, and we were at Monza and uh, there was also an SR3 class there and the chap he was racing with decided that he wanted to uh, try and do both classes inside the same one race. So how we would do it is, uh, from memory, Stuart would start in the one car, uh, the, the gentleman would race the other car and during the pit crossover, we'd change over and I'd still be, it was a very complex sort of situation. But anyway, uh, the SR3 class that I raced with the gent in uh, only had two cars in it. So one of two cars and uh, we were a late entry into it when we decided to do this. And I remember looking at the other guys and thinking, God, the car they've got looks really old. It looks really old and really slow. I mean, we haven't tested, but it's, we're going into qualifying. We haven't got the right gearing in, but I remember thinking, you're not going to need that. We're probably going to be five to six seconds faster than these guys. They should probably just give us the pole position, really. We don't even need to go out. So anyway, we uh, go out to qualify. Um, and I remember driving past, seeing my pit board. 
P2 and thinking, okay, that's not good. Um, and every lap we went a bit faster and it was still P2 and we ended up P2, uh, which in a race of two is not that good. Um, Particularly if you saw the state of the car that these people if were you driving. Saw the state of the car and these chaps who were really nice guys, but looked like they didn't look like racing drivers, if I'm honest. And you, it's one of those moments where you realise, oh, I might have been a bit overconfident with this one. So anyway, it went from just you know pull our car out and just put it on the tracks. That would be good enough. To we really need to you know let's put the new tyres on. We're going to think about setup now. We're going to change the gearing. We're going to change the setup. Everything. So we do that for the race. Go faster fireproofs on as well. Yeah, put go faster fireproofs on, and um, and for the race, I remember thinking this is really going to be easy this time because the car's so much. It's going to be so fast this time. Um, and anyway, it was still really hard to win. And it was just the lesson that really came back was just because you've never heard of them, just because you've never seen them, just because they haven't had the same opportunities you've had and been as fortunate to do some of the stuff we've done, there's a lot of fast people. And you see it consistently across the sport. And I think it's very easy to get complacent and think, oh, yeah, yeah, this guy's only ever done that. He's not going to be fast. Not the case. That's a lovely note to end on. So, so listeners, if you want to give Radical Racing a try, you too can embarrass Alex Mortimer on track this year. <laughs> Most um, of <laughs> So, gentlemen, we're, we're out of time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, hopefully, we've either inspired you to take up the sport or horrified you off it for life. I'm not really sure. We're probably 50-50 so far. But um, that brings us to a close. So thank you very much for listening and stay tuned for more great content from Motorsport. Motorsport.